Those of you who are university students, thank you so much for coming to North Boulevard for 70, almost five years. We've been a campus church. We love you guys. We have a place for you here. We have people who love you. Want to make sure you know about lunch this afternoon. We have lunch for you back in the fellowship hall. We'd love for you to come hang out. And uh, a little bit later, we'll talk about some of the opportunities that we have for you. I know it's been kind of a tricky week for all of us. Um, I was really kind of excited about this coming Sunday, but it's been a hard week. Uh, the news of Afghanistan has been so discouraging and distressing. We have brothers and sisters there who are in mortal danger, grave danger. COVID is roaring back, it looks like, and here we are again having to fight this thing. And I'm, I'm guessing that if you're, um, if you're a college student, it's kind of a bum time to have to go to school. Um, it's as though all of a sudden the vacation from history ended and now we have to face reality and it's not near as fun as uh, the vacation once was. But let's use this time together, the awesome music, the Word of God, the prayers, the fellowship, just to take a, a little break from all the stress of the week and celebrate what God has done for us. It's 2017, somebody invited my son, Jonathan, to go to an RFC gathering, Raiders for Christ. I don't think Jonathan had ever been to RFC, so uh, John had come out of school. I, I, John, I have John's permission to tell any story about him, but I don't have Julie's permission to tell every story about John, <laughs> so um, I have to be careful. The good news is she's not here, and she's not going to bother to watch me online, so I think we're safe. He went to an RFC event and um, loved it. Now, he's super introverted, and I, I thought, there's no way he's going to like it because he's too introverted. He doesn't like to be around other people. And, but he fell in love with it, and not only did he fall in love with it, but he married, he eventually married one of the ministers there, a woman who was a woman minister, <laughs> Mackenzie Canyu, not Dean, but a, another minister. And um, the rest in John's life is history. So we just got to see him not long ago in Eugene, Oregon, where they're planting a church, which they and Kurt Gallagher decided Eugene would be the right place because it's probably one of the most resistant places for the gospel in all the U.S. And that's where they wanted to be, where the Holy Spirit would have the biggest job and they could be in the will of the Holy Spirit. And I've often thought about how one little tiny decision can change the course of your whole life. Like, if he had said no that night when somebody invited him, think about it. If he just, if he'd had anything else going on or just made an excuse, which would have been consistent with the Jonathan I knew back then, if he had just not gone, I mean, I have no idea where the course of his life would have gone. As it is, he's got a great wife. She's a daughter to me. He's got a great life. He's in a great place. He's doing a great ministry. One little decision unfolds the beauty of what turns out to be a favorite text for probably half of the Christians in the U.S. Depends on which website you go to, but this is going to be one of the most popular verses of any website in North America. It's not John 3.16, which is what you might think, those of you who are older. Uh, you, you might be used to seeing Acts 2.38 at the Dallas Cowboys football games, but it's actually this text, a text that's familiar to many of you, from Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11, where the Lord makes this enormous promise to the Israelites. So it's an Old Testament book. It's written to the Jews who preceded the Christian people to follow. And in the text, the Lord says, listen, I know the plans I have for you. If I were to apply this to my son's life, 
God already knew before Jonathan went to RFC that night, God already knew what his plans were for Jonathan. The Lord says, I know the plans I have for you. And listen how he puts it. These are plans to prosper you, not plans to harm you, and to give you hope and to give you a future. So why is that one of America's favorite verses? I think the answer is not just the concept of hope and a future and not just the concept that God's not, like he's not angry, he's not preparing to kill you out there. But one reason why we like this is because it speaks of the plans of God, that God actually has a plan for your life. When I finally came to realize that God had a plan for my life, David Young's life, it brought at first a great peace. In fact, when I was five years old, the preacher where I was going to church told me I was going to be, he said, you're going to be a minister when you grow up. And he didn't ask me, he just said, you're going to be a minister. And he was so, uh, had such authority for me, spiritual authority, that I thought I have to do it now. He said I was going to do it. And so honestly, from the time I was five years old, I've always known I was going to be a minister. There's a lot of peace. I shouldn't say always because every Monday morning I wake up and think, why did I do this? But what I can say is that like... I never, when I graduated high school, I had no question what I was going to study. I had no question what kind of career. I've never thought to myself, you know, I should have been this or I should have been that. I didn't go through any of that soul searching. I knew I'm going to be a preacher. That's what I knew. My whole life I've known that. But there's also a degree of trouble that comes with that. As in, what if that wasn't the will of God? If God has a plan for me, like the very next problem is, Okay, how do I figure out what it is? That's actually a pretty big problem. Like, okay, if God has an individual plan for you, what if you miss it by making a bad decision? Or like, what's God's plan for your major or in your marriage? Let's say you're in a marriage that's really in the tank and you're trying to figure out what do I do? Do I stay? Do I leave or what? Well, you're going to be searching for the answer to the question, what's God's plan for me? Or you're in a career. You have an opportunity for a promotion, but you know you're going to have to travel. You'll be away from your family. Or maybe you've got a new job opportunity on the horizon. Or maybe the job you're in is just not a good job and you just think about leaving. And you're trying to figure out what is God's plan for me. The minute we say God has a plan for your life, we actually raise a, what can be a real dispiriting question. How do I figure out what it is? And what if I miss it? I want to answer that question today. And I actually want to give you some assurance that if you're in the will of God, whatever decision you make is going to be the right decision. If you're in the will of God. That actually you don't have to figure out what God's plan is for you. He has a plan, but you don't have to figure it out. All you have to do is live in the will of God. When you live in the will of God, he works out the plan himself. That's why Jeremiah 29 doesn't say, you know the plans I have for you. It says, I know the plans I have for you. So let me talk about that for just a second, then we'll be done for the day. I want to put Jeremiah 29 in context. We start with the book of Deuteronomy. I just finished, uh, David Hunter, I just finished a 32-week series on Deuteronomy. Not sure if y'all noticed that, but yes, 32 weeks. And you'll remember that Deuteronomy repeatedly says to the Israelites, if you become disobedient, if you worship idols, I'm going to banish you to a foreign country. This is the context for Jeremiah 29. So if you like Jeremiah 29, you kind of need to know this. Deuteronomy 4, he says, if you become corrupt, you will perish from the land and the Lord will scatter you among the people. So that's the threat issued through Moses. But I do want you to notice that God goes further to say, when you get scattered, if you will seek the Lord, you will find him. 
So Israel has been scattered. That's where we are now. God raised the Babylonian empire. They came in the, at the end of the seventh century before Christ. They dominated for nearly 70 years in the life of Israel. And they took the Israelites captives. So Israel now by King Nebuchadnezzar, who was actually, God actually says in the scriptures, I've appointed him to do this. And God picked this really evil king to do God's will to take the Israelites into captivity. By the way, this is one of the houses in Jerusalem that was destroyed. I, want to, I wanted to show it to you because I want to just compare for you the architecture difference between Babylon and Israel. So Babylon was a very sophisticated city when the Babylon Empire captured the Jews and took them back to Babylon where they were in captivity. Now, what's going on in Jeremiah 29 is that some false prophets have come along and they have, uh, well, they're supposed to serve 70 years according to Jeremiah 25, but some false prophets have come along and they have said it's not going to be 70 years. And so the text that's become so many of your favorites is a response to a false prophecy. And the false prophecy is, it won't be 70 years. You'll get to go home sooner than that. And so Jeremiah has to correct this false prophecy. He says, don't listen to them. This is what the Lord says. You will be here 70 years. But when the 70 years are completed, I will come and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Then he says, for I know the plans I have for you. So the plans that God has in this particular case were the plans to bring the Israelites back to the promised land after their 70 years of exile because, again, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, they will call on him and as they pray, he will answer. So that's really what's going on in the text. It is not just a statement that God gives you whatever it is you want or that if you have a good heart or if you're, you know, true to yourself or if you find the authentic you that everything's going to work out. That's actually not what Deuteronomy, uh, Jeremiah 29 is about. Jeremiah 29 is an affirmation that when you seek God, he will unfold his plan in your life. And you don't even have to know what it is. This, by the way, is one of the coolest parts of Scripture is that you don't have to figure out what God's plan for your life is. He's got one, but you don't have to figure it out, which should bring you a lot of peace. I'm going to explain to you how in just a moment, but before I do, I want to explain to you that in Scripture there are three different ways, probably more, but at least three different ways that the Bible talks about the will of God. Just kind of helpful to get this model in front of you. First is what we would call the sovereign will of God. That is, God is going to do some things and nobody's going to stop him. Here it is in Daniel chapter 4. Nobody can hold back the hand of God. So, for example, God is going to save his people and nothing is going to stop him. Nothing will come between the love of God and you. Nothing. That's God's sovereign will. Nothing's ever going to change that. It's unchangeable. So, God actually has an unchanging sovereign will that nobody can thwart. That's the first way that we use the phrase will of God. The second way that we use the will of God or the phrase will of God is God's moral will. That is, this is how God wants you to live. But you get a say in this one. You don't get a say in God's sovereign will. That's what he's going to do regardless of what you think. But in the moral will of God, this is what God wants you to do, but you actually can disobey God. You can actually thwart the moral will. I'll give you one illustration. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says it's God's will that you live a sexually holy life. But guess what? God doesn't always get his will on this one. That we actually can thwart the moral will of God. The moral will of God is what God wants us to do. But because we're free will agents, so to speak, we get free choice. God doesn't always get his moral will. And then there's what's called the providential will of God. 
By the way, if you're interested in will of God, I, I didn't come up with this model, so I'm not bragging on the model at all. It's an old model that's been used by lots of different thinkers. But if you're interested in it, you need to take a picture of this because this is going to help. This is actually a helpful thing for you to remember these three levels. The providential will of God is how God takes your choices and works them out for your good, even when you don't know that God's doing that. So the providential will of God occurs when you're out living life in the will of God and he takes even your dumb decisions and somehow grabs a victory from them. He takes even the broken stuff of your life, even the things in your life that you regret, even your, your worst sins, and he turns them into some sort of ministry. Uh, Christopher Wan was a uh, drug dealer, party animal, already infected with HIV by the time he was 20 years old. He was arrested and convicted for selling drugs. When he got to prison, uh, he tells this story himself. When he got to prison, as he's lying on his bed, he looks up in the bunk bed above him. Someone has scratched into the metal. When you get bored, read Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. Well, it took him about a week of being bored before he said, okay, I guess I'll read it. So he gets a Bible and he reads it and he says it changes his life instantly to realize God had a plan for him. So his life was so thoroughly changed that by the time he got out of prison, he went and got a PhD in religion. He's now a Bible professor at the Moody Bible Institute, speaks all over the world, great ministry. But here's what he would say, that he now is a better minister, a better minister because he started as a drug dealer. That's the providential will of God. That's God taking something that really in and of itself is a terrible thing and turning it into something wonderful. Now, Christopher Wan had no idea when he was convicted of dealing drugs that he would go to prison and become a Christian minister. But God knew. See, that was God's plan. God just didn't tell Chris that. And I can imagine Chris thinking to himself, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? And the answer is, it's really not that complicated. Do what's right and God will take care of the rest. This is what Romans 8, 28 affirms, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So providential will is that will where God works all things together. So let's ask this question. How do I know what God's will is for me? Well, I've already addressed it a little bit, but I wanted to be a little more specific for the last few minutes here. How do I know what God's will is for me? What major should I have? Should I date this person? Should I marry that person? Some of you, you know, you've been dating a long time trying to figure out, do I even get married? By the way, this actually, this sermon started out, when I first started working on this sermon about a month ago, I was thinking about, do I get married? That was a subject I wanted to preach on. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, do I really want to get involved in that decision? No. So kind of... The, the Lord revealed to me and his plan to do this sermon instead. How do I know what God wants me to do? Let me give you a few responses. Let me start here. Do not listen to your heart. So the theme song of North America is follow your heart. I just want to make sure you understand your heart is the disease, not the cure. <laughs> Following your heart is what messes you up. Look, if I followed my heart... I can tell you that every morning I would be at Donut Country getting a dozen chocolate glazed donuts because that's what my heart tells me to do. And you can see, you don't get a body like this by eating that way. I'm happy to share that with you. That your heart is the problem, not the solution. That your heart is deceived. Jeremiah actually says this. The heart is deceitful above all things. You know why? Because your heart, more than anything else, wants pleasure. 
Your heart doesn't want goodness, it wants pleasure. And so if you follow your heart, you may get pleasure, but pleasure is always short-lived. It's always short-lived. And after pleasure comes guilt, brokenness, despair. Don't follow your heart. In fact, you listen to what the, some of the wise people of the Old Testament say, the heart of fools is a house of pleasure. Proverbs 19 and uh, what, 21, that we might have all kinds of plans in our heart, but it'll be the Lord's purpose that actually prevails, not your heart. So rather than following your heart, live in the Word of God. The older I get, so I'm 60, I don't mind saying it, the older I get, the more the Word of God becomes priceless to me. The more I realize that it's not only true, but it's so honest. It's just so honest that it really dissects all the deceit in my heart. It dissects all the games my mind wants to play to justify the stupid things I do. The Word of God is it's like a GPS or a roadmap or a surgeon's knife. It has all this power. Like seriously, you ought to be living in the Word of God. John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the president, died in 1999, as I remember. And a plane crash. So we have pilots here. We have a fantastic uh, pilot program here at Murfreesboro at MTSU. I hesitate to say too much about flying because I know very little about it. I'm told that the reason his plane crashed was spatial disorientation. That is, he was not qualified to use instrumentation. It's a, that's another level of qualification that he had not attained. So he had to depend on his senses. That is, JFK Jr. did what I would have had to do, so I'm not knocking him. He had to follow his heart. He was flying at night off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. It was very cloudy, and as he was flying, uh, the spatial disorientation was severe. He wasn't sure if he was upright. He, he couldn't read his instruments, so he had to trust his instincts. And as a result, he lost his life, as did his wife and his sister-in-law who were in the, uh, in the little piper with him when it crashed. What I want to suggest is the reason God gives us a scripture is because following our heart is destructive. It's deadly. So he actually gives us written instructions. If you want to make a good decision, if you want to know what kind of decision to make, live in the Word of God. God says to Jeremiah, do whatever I command you. He says, uh, Jeremiah, when he's preaching, says, when people reject the Word of God, they have zero wisdom. I just want to say this is really important. So if you're experiencing leaders, for you university students, that's a big group up here, big group down here, maybe a big group online. No one who, no one, anyone, I can't get my sense together. Anyone who fails to follow the Word of God also is a fool. There's no wisdom apart from the Word of God. Now, that sounds harsh to say it, but it's actually true because it is the Word of God that really exposes who we are. It shows us all the junk in the room. It shows us all the ways you can go wrong. It shows us what path will lead us into the will of God. And so, when you reject the Word of God, there's no wisdom left. Um, as Jesus says, the one who does God's will is the one who will be a wise person, and those who do not do the will of God, who do not do what Jesus says, he says they're fools. So what I'm trying to suggest is this, start by bathing yourself in the Word of God. And I want to say, the Word of God is spectacular but foreign. It's so foreign to us. It's of a different era. I don't necessarily mean it's Greco-Roman or Hebrew. What I mean is, 
the Word of God thinks so differently than most of us do. So if you leave the U.S., go to another culture, you realize that, that Americans have a really peculiar way of thinking. Most Americans don't know that until they go abroad and they realize, oh, I'm, I'm odd. <laughs> We're odd. We are odd. I'm full display for the world to see too, by the way. When you read Scripture, it should strike you as odd. But the more you absorb it, the more the scales will fall from your eyes and you will see things you never thought were even there. Take forgiveness, for example. The Scriptures teach you the power of forgiving other people. And I want to tell you, apart from Scripture, why in the world would you bother to forgive somebody? Why not hold a grudge? But in Scripture, we learn not only that in forgiveness do we release someone else from their bondage, but we find our own freedom in forgiveness as well. You wouldn't know that apart from the Word of God, but the Word of God actually teaches us that, that in Christ we're set free, as we just sang a few minutes ago. I'm just encouraging you to listen to what the Scriptures say. Now, second, follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. You need to know that um, the Bible uses this phrase, led by the Spirit, several times. It says, for example, that we should be led by the Spirit. It says that Jesus was led by the Spirit. That's actually an odd thing to think that Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, but He was led by the Holy Spirit in His ministry. Uh, so what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, it certainly includes the Word of God. That is, the Spirit works on the level of truth. So the Holy Spirit's more than a feeling. He, he does bring feelings, but He's more than a feeling. He brings truth. But I want you not to stop there. Those of you who are older, whether you're online or here in the, at East Campus, wherever it is, for many of us, we really were taught that if you have the Bible, you also have the Holy Spirit. That's just not true that what the Scriptures actually teach is that the Bible is a tool for the Holy Spirit. But it's only a tool. In fact, the Bible's role is to get you to the Holy Spirit. If you don't get the Holy Spirit, you don't need the Bible. The only reason we have the tool is in order to do the thing the tool was designed to accomplish. Imagine having a whole shop full of tools but never fixing anything. So the Bible is the sword of the Holy Spirit, but He's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's vastly superior to having a Bible. I'm not downplaying the Bible. I'm suggesting that the reason you have a Bible is so that you can be led by the Holy Spirit. So what we want to do is allow ourselves to be led by the Holy Spirit. Now, you're asking how to do that. I hope you are. Here's what Ezekiel says. Actually, this kind of sentiment is expressed several times in Scripture. I'm just going to point to one. It's Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel says that God will give us His Holy Spirit. And watch what the Holy Spirit does in this text. He moves you to obey the Word of God. So the assumption of the text is that I really am so broken, I'm probably not going to obey God unless I get divine help. So the Holy Spirit actually motivates me to do the right thing. So for me to be led by the Holy Spirit is for me to allow the Holy Spirit to motivate me to do what He designed me to do. I'll give you a short illustration. So, um, say I'm trying to get it short. <laughs> Ken Shackelford was a missionary in uh, uh, Albania in Europe, Eastern Europe. His first couple of years, he told me the story. Uh, so I think he lives in, maybe in uh, Eastern Arkansas. I don't remember where he lives right now. He's telling me the story about when he first got to Albania, he was not a very successful missionary. And he just kept praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? I just, I'm not, it's not working. What's wrong? And he said, the Holy Spirit just kept moving my heart. I want you to go talk to the pastor of the largest church here in this region of Albania and ask him, 
what to do. And Shackelford says, I, I don't know that I even believe the Holy Spirit did things like that, but I couldn't say no to the Holy Spirit. So finally, he says, I called this guy up. The guy answers the phone. I said, look, I think the Holy Spirit's leading me to give you a phone call. And, and by the way, Shackelford says, it was so weird to do that. That's so, if you got a call like that, you know that's weird. Um, I mean, it just is. I've had people come to me and say, hey, David, the Holy Spirit told me to tell you to do this or that. And I just have to tell you, usually it's kind of weird. I, sometimes I've even said, go back, ask the Holy Spirit if you'll come talk to me directly about it because I'm not sure I believe you. <laughs> um, it's just weird. It just is, right? So he calls this guy and the guy starts crying on the phone immediately. He says, I just turned in my resignation. I'm burned out. I can't do this anymore. I'd love to meet with you. So they go to have coffee at a coffee shop somewhere in Albania. Is this not a weird story already? So they're, they're sitting there having coffee. And in walks this guy and says, are you two ministers? And they said, yeah. And he said, well, the Holy Spirit sent me here to talk to you. And he says, oh, is that right? He says, yeah, I just got out of jail. I got a bus from prison. And the Holy Spirit told me to get off the bus here and go in the coffee shop and talk to the two ministers who were in there. He said, don't ask me why, but I'm, here I am. And they said, well, have a seat. Okay, I'm shortening the story. By the time the story's over, Ken and the jailbird become the ministers of the church that the guy leaves to come back to the U.S. and end up planting like half a dozen churches and baptizing hundreds of people. Now, what Shackelford will tell you is any step along the road was so weird, I could have said, this is too weird for me. Had no idea what God was actually up to in all this, but here's the deal. God had plans for him. God didn't have to tell Ken what to do. All Ken had to do was say, yes, sir. Just obey. When the Holy Spirit moves you to do the right thing, you don't have to say, yeah, but what? What will I get out of it? Or where's this going, Lord? Just do it. Let him worry about the results. He's God. He didn't say in Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, you know that you have a plan. He said, I know that I have a plan. Now, how do you follow the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you at least two big ways. First one is praising God. And again, so I said that the Holy Spirit is bigger than your feelings, but it includes your feelings. There's something about the Holy Spirit's work that connects both with the heart and the mind. And in the heart, think about the power of praise. The Bible commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's actually a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just a description, but a command. You're, you're commanded to do that which seems impossible. That is, fill yourself up with the Holy Spirit. So you ask the question, well, how? How would I do that? This text, Ephesians chapter 5, says you do that by singing. Isn't that nuts? When you praise God, you get more Holy Spirit. Surely you feel that sometimes. I mean, it's a, Julie and I talked yesterday about, she was talking about, it's a down week. It's such a down week. She said, I don't know how you're going to preach tomorrow because everybody's going to come in down. And I was thinking, man, just throw the whole sermon out. And, and then all of a sudden we all start singing. And did you just feel it? Could you feel it too? If you couldn't feel it, if you can't feel it online, it's just because we don't have enough microphones. But if you're in the auditorium and you didn't feel it, it's because you're sitting in the back. If you come down front, you feel it. That's not an invitation. <laughs> not yet. But I'm just saying all of a sudden praising God and like the Holy Spirit says, no, we can do this, guys. We can do this. Come on, let's do this. Let me tell you the second way that you fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. It's through prayer. Through prayer, we engage a spiritual dimension that's not available to us any other way. That's why the Bible says, 
Well, Paul says here, pray in the Spirit. It doesn't just say pray. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Jude says the same thing. Make sure that you are always praying in the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we pray in the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 4, God does such amazing things that the room can rumble. So I'm just encouraging you when you're making a decision, pray, Holy Spirit, lead me in this. And then whatever he says do, so long as it's consistent with the Word of God, because the Holy Spirit's never going to tell you to do something inconsistent with the Word of God. If, if you hear a voice that's telling you to do something inconsistent with the Word of God, that's not the Holy Spirit, that's a demon. The Holy Spirit only leads you to do the right thing. When the Holy Spirit says, let's do this thing, you don't have to get a full plan. Just say, okay, I'm going to do it. And then let, let him do his thing. Okay, I have to finish this sermon. So, number next, seek godly counsel. I just want to say this. This is applicable to all ages. But since it's students, Sunday, I'll say it to the students. If you want good advice, don't ask your friends. Like, they know as little as you know. But when you ask them, they're going to become the Pope of Rome. They're going to tell you everything that you ever imagined hearing. If you're having a marriage problem, if you're struggling in your marriage, don't ask your friends for advice. You know why? Because first of all, they're probably having the same problems you're having. And second, they're just going to tell you what you want to hear. If you actually want good advice, go to someone who has walked with Jesus for a lot of years. If you want to be, if you want a better marriage, first of all, I wouldn't even ask for a better marriage. I've quit asking that. I, my prayer is make me a better husband. And I'll let God and Julie worry about her. Like that's somebody else's problem. My only problem is am I a good husband? That's my problem. And if I want to become a better husband, I, want, I don't go talk to my buddies who are going to tell me what I want to hear. I go talk to somebody who's actually walked this road before. That's why the Bible talks about listening to advice. Wise people listen to advice. That many advisors will help you succeed. That um, Jeremiah even advises, don't listen to the prophecies that are lies. They're just there to make you feel good about yourself. Don't hang around with people who are going to corrupt you. In each case, what we're being told is, Find somebody who actually knows what they're talking about and say, will you mentor me? Will you help me on this one? All right, number four, practice faithfulness. This, this is kind of like the, what this whole sermon was supposed to be about. Because I was just thinking, you know, so many of us are not good at making long-term commitments. We live in a world that's not all that good about committing. So we have, for example, marriages that don't last. Um, corporations that are not really necessarily faithful to their employees who giving them years and years and years of service. Uh, we have leaders who let us down. Many of you grew up in homes where either a mom or a dad abandoned you. We're kind of in a culture that's not really good at making commitments, but I want you to know, if you want to make a good decision, decide to do the right thing and keep doing it. Like, don't back down from it. You don't, you don't drown by falling in water. You drown by staying in it. That the way really to be successful, the, the millionaire who lives next door to you, you know how that millionaire became a millionaire? Not by winning the lottery. How many, how many of y'all have won a million dollars in the lottery? Go on and raise your hand. If you've won a million dollars in the lottery, I want to know who you are. <laughs> but you know, we've got millionaires here, and you know how they did it? They put $100, $200 aside every month, and they just didn't stop doing it. You know, if you put $50 a month aside, starting at your 20th birthday, and just averaging out the Dow Jones Industrial Average for the last several decades, when you retire, 
you'll have a quarter of a million dollars from just $50. That's two McDonald's meals for a couple. Well, I just want you to know that just doing the right thing over and over again actually somehow leads to good decisions. And so we learn to commit ourselves to doing what's good. We guard the course so that we're faithful. We prove ourselves faithful. We keep the faith that's been given us, or to put it in the language of Eugene Peterson, who wrote a book with this title some years back, practice long obedience in the same direction. So Ken Carlson is, uh, was really, uh, he was at first, our first service here at eight o'clock this morning. Ken Carlson is a grandmaster in Taekwondo. And uh, he taught my son Taekwondo, by the way. I've mentioned this. And Ken actually worked for North Boulevard for a stretch. Uh, lives in D.C., but he was visiting this morning. He's, uh, he will tell you that the way to master Taekwondo is you figure out the six basics and you just keep doing them. You never stop doing them. You just keep doing them. And you just keep doing them well. That's why Ken Carlson's like, you know, he's, he can watch the 60-minute television program in 20 minutes. He, I mean, that's how, that's from just doing the, I've got a whole lot of those too. I've been saving those on Ken Carlson jokes. The fastest way to a man's heart is through Ken Carlson's fist. That's one of my, if you keep laughing, I'm going to keep going because I got like 18 of them up here. If you're bored, you ought to laugh right now. Let's, let's go on to a little humor. Um, but what I'm suggesting is his, his whole thing is, if you think about an Olympic sport, Olympic athlete, an Olympic athlete, you know, they may be a genius, but they're a genius who never stops training. You know, by the time a gymnast makes it to the Olympics, she or he has probably done every single routine no fewer than 25,000 times over and over and over again. By the time a, a swimmer makes it to the Olympics, they have probably swam somewhere in the vicinity of 10,000 miles with a heart rate up at 160 beats per minute. That is, mastering the basics and just doing them better and better and better, that's how you become good at it. So I'm suggesting part of the decision-making process is just saying, Lord, I'm just going to keep obeying you. And every time you obey, a new aspect of the plan of God in your life unfolds before you. And one day, I guarantee you, you do this, one day you're going to look back on it and say, oh my goodness, it's been a wonderful life. That's what will happen. That's what he guarantees because he says, I have plans for you. And so rather than saying, Lord, you have to reveal your plans to me and then we'll decide whether I do it, because that's what we really want to do. Lord, you tell me what your plans are and I'll, I'll let you know whether I'm going to do it or not. There's a better way to do it. Commit yourself to the Lord and let him establish the plans. Doesn't that give you some peace? Like that gives me peace. To realize I don't have to figure out every single aspect of what decision God wants me to make. Instead, I'll just obey Him and let Him worry about the plans. See, we actually want God to give us a point on the map. But oftentimes, He only gives us a compass. And when we get that down, we can enjoy the ride. So, hmm, i got three concluding stories and they're all competing for my attention. The rabbis used to say about the Exodus that Moses got to the Red Sea, the mightiest army in the world, Ramses or Thutmose or whoever, whichever one it was, is behind him, hot on his trail. They're looking at the Red Sea. They're pinned. They're trapped. What are we going to do? 
They're runaway slaves. The rabbi said that Moses looked at God and said, God, what do we do? And God said, I'll part the water for you. Go across. And Moses says, yes, Lord, but where? And the Lord said, just start walking. I'll worry about where. That's really how you make a decision for God. You just obey him. He'll worry about where the water gets parted. So you can just say to yourself, all right, Lord, I'm going to obey you. And if I take this job, I know you're going to part the water there. And if I keep this job, you'll part the water there. If I marry this person, you'll part the water there. If I marry that person, you'll part the water there. Like, it's not as though God has said, you have to marry Sue, but I'm not going to tell you that. You got to figure that out. Or that God said, I want you to pick this major, but I'm not going to reveal it to you. And if you get it wrong, you're going to have a life of misery. That's not how God works. What God is offering you is this, do it my way and I will work all things together for your good. So that's my invitation. Make a decision for the Lord. And you do that in these very simple ways and then rest in peace with what he does next. So, we're going to have somebody go back to the back of the room. We actually don't come forward here. We go to the back. And at the back of the room, we'll have somebody back there who will be willing to pray with you. Pray for the Holy Spirit in your life. Pray for your plans. Pray for a decision that you might be facing. We're going to stand up and sing a song. And when we do that, if you want prayers, it's not a big commitment. You just go back to the back. Somebody will be back there. They'll be back there to pray with you. Let us, let us pray for you. Let us intervene. Let us see what God wants to do in your life. So let's stand up. And let's have a song.